0: Praise God. Well, this morning, I want to minister to you on how the righteous live by faith. And this is actually going to be a series that we're going to get started. And it's probably going to last over the next several several weeks, uh, maybe a couple months. I'm not sure. Um, There's 16 chapters in the Book of Romans. And today, we're just getting through one. And I want to get through the whole Book of Romans. It's an incredible book. And uh, so, like I said, today, we're going to start on Chapter 1. And I've entitled it, The Righteous Live by Faith. Now, the Book of Romans is a... uh, just an incredible look at salvation by faith apart from works. Paul does a really great job explaining where salvation comes from. It's no longer based on works of the law, but it's based on belief in Jesus Christ. as how, how we become righteous. He deals with the gift of salvation. He deals, uh, Paul deals with the folly of unbelief. And uh, he also demonstrates that salvation is not just for the Jews anymore, but it's also for the Gentiles, which, thank God, includes all of us. And then he also teaches us that we are empowered to live righteously through the accomplishments of Jesus Christ. And as I was looking at the book of Romans and the impact that it's had in people's lives, uh, I began to look around and and, uh, you guys heard of uh, Augustine or maybe you know him as St. Augustine? He's one of the early church fathers and he was uh, considered actually an incredible theologian. And and this is what, uh, what I was reading about him. It says his conversion occurred in the summer of 386. In his confessions, he describes his tearful prayer in, in a Milan garden setting, beseeching God to purify his unclean thoughts and habits. See, uh, Augustine, before, before he uh, met Jesus, was apparently just an incredibly intelligent young man, but he was having a hard time understanding where evil came from, and he was getting invested in all these Greek philosophers, and, and uh, but he just he, he, he wasn't filling that hole in his heart. And the truth is, the only thing that can fill that hole is Jesus Christ. So he says, I was saying these things as he was involved in all kinds of crazy stuff and he couldn't control his flesh. Uh, He says, as I was saying these things, praying to God and weeping in the most bitter contrition of my heart when suddenly I heard the voice of a boy or a girl, I know not which, coming from the neighboring house, chanting over and over again, pick it up, read it, pick it up, read it. So he says, Augustine ran to the bench where he'd left the book of Romans I snatched it up, opened it, and in silence read the paragraph on which my eye first fell. Not in rioting and drunkenness, not in chambering and wantonness, not in strife and envying, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill the lust thereofs. And today we know that is Romans 13:13. 13, 13. Then he says, Augustine explains that when he read that passage, there was infused in my heart something like a light of full certainty and all the gloom of doubt vanished away. Then Martin Luther describes this book as the chief part of the New Testament in the very purest gospel. John Wesley wrote, I felt my heart strangely warmed. I felt I I did trust in Christ and Christ alone for salvation. And an assurance was given me that he had taken away my sins, even mine, and saved me from the law of sin and death after hearing the preface of Martin Luther's commentary on the book of Romans. The book of Romans has been transforming lives throughout for thousands of years, and the great thing is that it has the power to do the same for us today. It's an incredible testimony of God's love for us and righteousness in Him. And today we're going to start this, like I said, probably many week long series looking at the book of Romans because it's such an incredible book. And like uh, Martin Luther said, the, the very purest gospel. This is, this is the gospel to all of us. So the first scripture I want to look at is Romans 1, 1 through 3. Crazy, right? Starting in Romans 1, 1 as we start the book of Romans. You see what I did there? It says Paul, a bondservant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the holy scriptures concerning his Son, who was born of a descendant of David according to the flesh. See, Paul, even though he's a he was a Roman citizen, at this point had actually not gone to Rome. See, Paul was made the minister, uh, he was a, a minister to the Gentiles. That's what he, he proclaimed himself that he was. He was a minister to the Gentiles. And therefore, he, he skipped over Rome because there were already Christians in Rome. There was people preaching in Rome. And, and Paul didn't want to to build on somebody else's foundation. He was out preaching to the Gentiles in other areas. So he never went to Rome. So when he wrote this letter, this is later on in his ministry, he writes to them and uh, he begins to tell them who he is. The first thing he does when he begins this letter to the Romans is, is he kind of gives his, his credentials. And his credentials, one, is that he's a bondservant of Christ Jesus. Do you guys know what a bondservant is? A bondservant is, essentially the word he was used is, is a slave. He was a slave to Jesus Christ. And a bond servant was one they used to. If I if I recall correctly, they would it be if you in, uh, had your term of service as a slave, and and slaves in, in the Jewish culture were. It wasn't like what we think of in, in our history where once they were a slave, they were always a slave. It was usually for a, a length of time. And after their time was up, they were given their freedom. And if a slave loved his master so much, what he would do is he would, he would uh, of his own accord, stay and, and serve in their household. And one of the things they did is they would take their earlobe and they would uh, drive a, a nail through their earlobe into the door jamb to signify that they were a servant. They were staying of their own own free will. And, uh, but that was because they, they loved their masters. They wanted to stay with them, and they, they made the choice. There was a man many years ago, he was a well-to-do Christian, and, and he, uh, he paid a really high price for, for this slave in, in a slave auction. I'm not sure where this story happened, but uh, I do know that he, he paid an, an extremely high price for this slave that he saw. And the truth is, this man, he hated slavery. He didn't do it because he wanted a slave. He hated slavery. He actually intended to set this slave free. So when he he pays the price, and the first time he ever meets the slave, he says, I'm giving you everything that you need. Here's the papers for you to be free. And the slave looks at him and says, am I truly free? Am I on my own? May I go where I wish? And the Christian said, yes, that's why I bought you, so you could be loose from these chains forever. He says, overwhelmed by these words, the slave fell at his feet and said with a heartfelt devotion, then my greatest joy and freedom will be to stay with you and serve you gladly for the rest of my life. And in the same way we're with Jesus, Jesus came and he freed us from the oppression of this fallen world. He freed us from, the, 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 from sin who we were slaves to. And the same thing happened with Paul. And as a result, as, as a result, started in the, the second slide, I'm already messing my words up. As a result, uh, Paul said that I'm going to stay and be a bondsman. I'm a slave to the Christ Jesus and then he says he's an apostle, called as an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. As an apostle, that means one who is, uh, uh, who is sent with delegated authority. You remember, Paul met Jesus on the Damascus road, on the road to Damascus. And Paul, he said, Paul, Paul, why are you, why are you uh, persecuting me? Why are you, you kicking against the goat? And, and that's at that moment, Paul was actually set apart to be an apostle to the Gentiles. He was set apart with the delegated authority from Christ Jesus to preach the word. And then he says, that set apart for the gospel of God. Anybody know what the word gospel means? Anybody but Joseph? <laughs> it means good news. Simple as that. The gospel is the good news. Now, how many of you guys have ever heard those people sitting on the side of the road just preaching fire and brimstone, you're all going to hell, yada, yada, yada? I used to, when I went to the U of A, there was this guy that would sit out in the mall of the U of A with a, with a megaphone and just it wasn't good news, that's for sure. You know, and that's, that's why we don't preach that way. That's why we don't go out there and tell everyone they're going to hell because of their failures. You know, you see these people on pickets and signs, and, and it's, man, they're not showing the light of Jesus. They're showing something else. The truth is, we preach that he came to give us life, not that they're going to have death. That death is coming their way, but Jesus came to give us life, and that's good news. Then he begins to say that this has been a long time coming. He says, this is promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son who was born of a descendant of David according to the flesh. And we're going to talk a little bit more about this. But right now, it says that Christ came according to the flesh. You've probably heard me say it before, but but Jesus was 100% man. He was a man just like us. The same desires, the same wants, the same shortcomings. He was a man just like us because he was born a descendant of David according to the flesh. We move on to Romans 4 through 6. Romans 1 4 through 6. It says, Who was declared the Son of God with a power by the resurrection from the dead, according to the Spirit of holiness, Jesus Christ is our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles for his name's sake, among whom you also are the called of Jesus Christ. See, we just read in the last passage that Jesus was fully man, but we also find out here that he was declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead. See, Jesus was not only 100% man, but he was also 100% God. Jesus was God, there's no doubt about it. Matter of fact, if he was just a man and he would die, how could he pay for all of our sins? A man to die would be able to just pay for one man's sins. But Jesus was God in the flesh. He came down. His name was Emmanuel, God with us. And it says that, that, uh, that his resurrection from the dead proved that he was God. He was who he said he was. And it also proved that uh, it validated his claims when he said, when he told people that he would be rising again. If you remember in John uh, 2, 18 through 19, it says, The Jews then said to him, What sign do you show us your authority for doing these things? And Jesus answered to them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Then in Matthew 16, 21, it says, From the time Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised up on the third day. You see, his resurrection proved that he was who he said he was. You know, if Jesus would have died and nothing would have happened, the story would have ended there. Matter of fact, the quickest way that the people that were against Jesus To end the Christian faith to just squash it right then would have been to produce his body. To show that he was in fact still dead. But he wasn't. His resurrection proved that he was who he said he was. That he was going to destroy the temple and raise it up in three days. And he raised that temple up in us as we're now the temple of God. And then we find it's according to the the spirit of holiness or according to the Holy Spirit. Working is how he was resurrected from the dead. You know, we find that God is always working in the three persons of the Godhood. Three persons, but one God. There's the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Because the Father sent His Son, and the Son died on the cross to pay the penalty for our sins and give us new lives. But the Holy Spirit, who came after Jesus, when Jesus went away, He said, I'll send another, I'll send the Helper. The Holy Spirit is here to testify with our spirits that we are saved in Him. And then again, he goes on asserting his, his credentials as apostle. It says, Through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles for his namesake. You see, Paul was, uh, was put to work to bring faith to the Gentiles, to get them into the obedience of the faith. But for whose namesake? For Paul, so Paul could be glorified. But no, for, for God's namesake, for Jesus' namesake. You know what? Jesus wants you to be in fellowship with him. You know, we get saved and it's, it's, it's because Jesus loves us and he wants to be with us. We're actually saved for his benefit because he wants to spend time with us. And then finally it says, among whom you also are the called of Jesus Christ. See, Paul's been preaching all over uh, that area to all the different nations and making them Christians. They are they're called as Christians. And Paul was explaining to the Romans that, that uh, even this land that they're in, this, this heathen nation or all of them, that, that those who know Jesus are called by the same name. They are called of Jesus Christ. There's, he was basically putting them on equal footing with everybody else. The Gentiles, the Jews, everybody that accepted Jesus were all called of Jesus Christ. Then we'll continue on to Romans 1, 7 through 10. It says, To all who are beloved of God in Rome, called as saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all because of your faith. Because your faith is being proclaimed through the whole world. For God whom I serve in my spirit and in the preachings of the gospel of his Son is my witness as to how unceasingly I make mention of you. Always in my prayers, making request, if perhaps now at least by the will of God, I may succeed in coming to you. I'm going to point something out here. It says to all who are beloved in, of God in Rome, called as saints. How many here feel like that you're a saint? How many of you here are a saint? Every single one of you. See, the thing is, a sinner and saint is an identity, not a a result of your, of, of your actions. He said they're called as saints. Not one day they'll be called as saints. Not if they, they pass the test put out by the, by the uh, Catholic rules that will be coming in the future. There's, there's, there's none of this. A saint is an identity given to you as soon as you accept Jesus Christ into your heart. You are a saint. You were a sinner. But you're not a sinner anymore. But Pastor Wayne, sometimes I still sin. That doesn't make you a sinner. Because of what Jesus Christ did in you, you are a saint. You are no longer a sinner. You are no longer identified as a sinner. Now, I would recommend that you uh, continue to discipline your body and do things so as not to sin. But the Bible says the righteous man falls and gets up. He falls seven times, but he gets back up seven times. If you do fail, you've only failed if you don't get back up again. But the truth is it's that, that your identity is a saint because you've accepted Jesus Christ into your hearts. And then Paul, if you notice, whenever you read letters written by Paul, he always mentions how he is praying for them. He says, I thank God through Jesus Christ for you all because your faith is being proclaimed throughout the whole world. You know, Paul's thankful for the believers in Rome. And what I find interesting is, is that, that uh, these aren't even Paul's people. I mean, Paul hasn't been to Rome. Paul hasn't preached in Rome. None of these people are Paul's disciples or converts but he's praying God and he's thanking them for them. And I, I, look at this and I'm and I I'm amazed at the example that Paul is to all of us. You know, one that we one of the things that we can be doing, not only praying for everybody in our congregation, making sure that we're lifting each other up and and uh, asking the Lord's blessing on each and every one of us, but the other thing we need to be doing is praying for the other churches in the area, people that actually aren't our disciples, that aren't our converts, but th- you know what? They're still the body of Christ. And the church is His. The church is, is Christ's. Whether they're in this particular congregation or congregations down the street, every life-giving church should be prayed for by us to have success, to lead people to the Lord, to, to convert people to Christianity, because that's the only place that life is. And when that's difficult, you know, we just need to ask God to give us, give us His eyes. Because there's times it's tough to pray for other people, to pray for people you don't know. Pray for, for those who, sometimes it's, it's harder praying for people you do know. Because <laughs> you know who they are, you know what they've done. Just ask God to give you your eye, give you his eyes. So that you can see them as how he sees them. Because I want you to know that Christ died not just for you, not just for us that are saved right now, and not just for those of us that are, are, are good people, but Christ died for all of us, no matter what we've done. Because God loved them that much, in spite of what they did, and so should we. Amen. Then Romans 1, 11 through 15, it says, For I long to see you, that I may impart some spiritual gift to you, that you may be established. That is, that I may be encouraged together with you, while among you, each of us by the other's faith, both yours and mine. I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, Pardon me, that often I have planned to come to you and have been prevented so far, so that I might obtain some fruit among you also, even as among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So, for my part, I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. you know Paul wanted to minister to the Romans he wanted the opportunity to preach about his god about the about Jesus and what he's done for him but the great thing i, I think about i love about paul is he, he understands that that uh, everything he does is not just for them you know it, it would almost be egotistical to think if, if you were to think about how awesome he is and what he can provide for them but he also understands that that uh, he says, I may be encouraged together with you. understood that, that together they would be able to encourage one another. Their faith would encourage him just as his faith would would encourage them. And he understood that uh, that working together, they would continue to grow and have a greater impact. And then it says he wants to see some fruit among them. And the reason being is that Paul was, a, was an apostle to the Gentiles, and that included the Romans. And he says that... Uh, he says right here, he says that I'm under obligation. The word obligation means that I'm under obligation, or I'm, in, I'm indebted to these people, that I, I owe them this, as both to the Greeks and to barbarians. And to the Greeks, as far as they were concerned, if you weren't Greek, you were a barbarian. You were either Greek or a barbarian, and that was your two options. Kind of like with the Jews, there was the Jews and the Gentiles. You were either a Jew or you were everybody else, including the Greeks. But Paul says that I'm under obligation both to the Greeks but also to the barbarians, everybody else. He says both to the wise and to the foolish. Now you notice a pattern here? Greeks and barbarians, wise and foolish, there's really nobody else left. Basically, Paul says that I'm obligated to preach the gospel to everyone. In Acts 10.34, Peter says that God is no respecter of persons. How many of you are thankful that God's no respecter of persons? I know I am. And then Romans 2.11, Paul says the same thing. Later on, we're going to hear him say the same thing, that God is no respecter of persons, that he's not partial, but he loves us all. Everyone is included in those Paul is obligated to preach the gospel to. You find here that he says that I've been longing to see you too. You know what I find odd is that he says that uh, I have planned to come to you and have been prevented so far. You know, the devil is always going to be coming up against us. In one translation, I don't know if it's here or elsewhere. It's basically saying that I longed to come to you, but Satan prevented me. You know, the truth is that uh, the devil is going to be coming against us to try to stop us from ministering to people, trying to stop us from touching people's lives. And we need to overcome that and push through and understand that that God loves all of these people, no matter what the devil's trying to tell us, no matter what he does. That we are obligated to preach the gospel, because the truth is, it's an amazing thing that we have to share. We're all willing to talk about our favorite football teams or basketball teams or our favorite TV shows or favorite cars. We need to make sure that we're willing to tell people about, about the God who loves them, who's more important than any of those things. Romans 1.16-17 says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel. You ever wonder where that song we sang this morning is, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, Lord? Here's where it comes from. I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as as it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. Truth is, the gospel is our most prized possession. It's the most valuable thing that we can offer anybody, is eternal life, everlasting life. But unfortunately we live in a time when many Christians are, are ashamed and afraid to talk about their faith. We're afraid of what someone might say. Are they going to point and laugh? We're afraid that we might get in trouble at work. Are we allowed to do this at work? And, and, I, and I'm not saying do something to get yourself in trouble. But we, we do need to make sure that uh, we're not using that as an excuse not to share our faith. We're afraid that we might offend somebody. Oh man. We live in a world today where political correctness is at the forefront of everything, and and the only people you're allowed to offend are Christians, apparently. Everyone else, you have to be, you got to walk on, on on water with, you got to tread tread water, and, and make sure we don't hurt anybody, because telling them about Jesus might hurt their feelings. There was a man who served as a missionary in a restricted access country, and you know, there's there's countries uh, that are very difficult to get in. If you're a Christian, they'll kill you. And sometimes they're just restricted in the fact that nobody can get into them. But there's this restricted access country that for years the government of this country taught the people that there was no God. And there was this man who had the opportunity to interact on a regular basis with a non-believer of that country who was a highly educated professional. And after he developed a friendship with him, he said that uh, he, he he had the opportunity to share the gospel with him. And he was shocked at the response of this man, who his government had been telling him there is no God. He says, What you have told me cannot be true. If it were true, it is such good news such good news that someone would have told me this before now. The truth is, what we have is such good news that, I mean, can you imagine that response? You can't be telling me the truth, because if it was true, if it was so good, somebody would have already told me about it. How many of us are not telling people about it for fear or for, for shame? The truth is we should not be ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for salvation to who? Everyone who believes. There's power in the gospel. There's power to mend lives, to restore broken relationships. There's power to, to heal people's bodies. Those who are sick. And it's the only thing that can fill the hole in a person's heart is if they don't have it. You know, we see people searching for something always to fill that void. Sometimes they don't even know what they're trying to do, but they're getting into drugs and sex and alcohol and all these different things, looking for something to fulfill them when all they need is, is Jesus, who truthfully is the only thing that can satisfy them internally. All these other things are but for a short time. But Jesus is eternal and to fill that hole in your heart. And it's not exclusionary. It's for everybody. There's nobody that's left out. And then it says right here that the righteousness of God is revealed in the gospel from faith to faith. How can we be righteous? By faith. And it's revealed to us that that's the only way that we can be righteous in Jesus Christ. The way to be righteous is in Jesus. And then the next line I find is, is one that I think I've misunderstood for so many years. It says, but the righteous man shall live by faith. And I think I've always misunderstood it backwards because I've always looked at this thing thinking that, oh, I'm righteous, this is how I'm going to live, is by faith. But the truth is, it's not the righteous man shall live by faith, but by living by faith, the man has become righteous. It's our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ that, that makes us live righteous. Basically, if you were a righteous man, you are living by faith because that's the only way to become righteous in Jesus Christ. So how can we become righteous? You know, the gospel is, is so simple on paper. You know, it's so, if, you, if you look at it, it's, it's trust God, believe that He's sent his son, and you're righteous. And sometimes that's tough for people, but the truth is, it really is that simple. In Galatians, Galatians 2.16, Paul says, Nevertheless, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus. Even we have believed in Christ Jesus so that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, since by the works of the law no flesh will be justified. Being justified is to be found innocent or guiltless. The only way that we're found innocent or guiltless before God is not by the works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. The truth is there's no amount of doing that you can do to make yourself right with God. Paul makes it clear here in Galatians that the law cannot make anybody righteous. Basically, what the law did was pointed out how we're failing. Then in Romans 3.28, he says, We maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from works of the law. The truth is that nothing that you do will make you righteous for God, except for believing in Him. It's apart from the works of the law. Does that mean that we can do whatever we want? No. No. The truth is that when when you have a God that loves you so much, you're gonna to want to live for Him. He set you free not that so you could do whatever, whatever you want, but He set you free from those things that you had to do before. He set you free from them, not free to do them. Amen. And this is a tough one here. This next scripture we're gonna look at Romans one eighteen through twenty. It says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and righteousness of men, who suppress the truth and unrighteousness, because that which is known about God is evident within them. For God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the whole of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made so, that they are without excuse. See, the story of man is not one of, of, a, of a devolved man evolving, first worship, worshiping um, weather and gods and idols and then growing into to a man who, who uh, worships one true God. But the fact is, is, is the story of man is about a man who was, was made perfect by God and was in fellowship with the one true God who actually devolved into worshiping all these other things, walking away from God. And the truth is, God's wrath is revealed and those who don't receive the truth, who don't receive righteousness by faith. And it's not that he is actively giving his wrath, but be, they make the choice to live eternally without God. They make the choice to receive that wrath. And then it says that there are men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. You ever met anybody like that? I've met tons of people like that that are so offended about what God has to offer that they not, only, they not only live an unrighteous life themselves, but they try to suppress that truth from everybody else. They actively preach against God, saying these things can't be true. But the, the Bible says that, that, that those that do such things or live, live evil lives, they're storing up for themselves wrath when the end of the age comes back. The fact of the matter is that sometimes it may seem like that things are going just fine right now, but there's, there's a day that the choices that they made, they'll have to pay for, that they're going to be living eternally without of God. They're going to be living for the rest of their life in hell because of the choices that they made. And it's not because God didn't love them or God didn't want them to be made clean or God didn't want them to be restored. It's because they made the choice to suppress the truth in unrighteousness. But the problem they're going to have is, is that they're without excuse. It says that his eternal power and divine nature has been clearly seen, being understood through, through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. The truth is that, that uh, when they stand there before God and they're going to say, oh, but I didn't know. Nobody ever told me. They're without excuse. Or what about the people, have you ever, have you ever uh, wondered about the people that maybe have never had Jesus preach to them? That's a question that comes up often. What about people that have never heard? What's going to happen to them? Well, the Bible says that they're without excuse. For since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes, His internal power, and divine nature have been clearly seen. Being understood through what has been made so that they're without excuse. And What does this mean? Well, it means that, that they're going to have a choice too. They're going to either decide that they could do it on their own or that they're going to trust God. They're going to realize that they can't do it on their own. Now, will they specifically believe in Jesus? Not if they didn't know his name, but there still has to come to a point where are they are going to trust God or are they going to trust in themselves? Abraham had to make that same decision. It was his, his, uh, his trust in God that was declared to him as righteousness. The truth is the world testifies to God's existence. You can't, you can't go outside in the, in, in the night, especially out here in Marana where it's so clear and look up and we see all the stars There's no way you can look at that and think that that just happened out of the blue. You know, some say that they don't believe in God. But the truth is, I don't believe that there's a such thing as a true atheist. You can't just look at the stars and and say it just happened. I I don't believe there's a such thing as a true atheist. And it's always funny when I'm talking to one and they go, well, you're looking at one right now. So I tell them, so you're saying that uh, just because I don't believe in something, it can still exist? Well, that's strange. The truth is that even though they don't believe in God, he still exists, and he still loves them, even them, those who have turned their back on him completely. Then in Romans through 23 it says, For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools, and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and four footed animals and crawling creatures. You know, he's speaking of the lost that chose not to honor God. Unfortunately, they ignored everything in this world that testified to a God, and they begin to speculate. They begin to do their own thing. And Back in those days, and everything that happened, they attributed to a god. Rain came from the rain god, and wars happened because of the war god. And there was a love god, and there's the river gods, and the earth god, the mountain gods, and there's all these different gods that 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 people are are instead of instead of listening to what the world is testifying to them, that there is one true god, they begin to speculate and make up their own things. They begin to look elsewhere, and as they looked elsewhere, their heart began to darken. And they begin to pro- profess to be wise. They begin to profess to know how it's all laid out. And the funny thing is, is did you notice what the first thing here is, is uh, being exchanged for the glory of the incorruptible God? The first is the false God in the form of a corruptible man. They begin to hold themselves up as gods instead of trusting in the one true God. And also putting faith in birds and four-footed creatures and animals and, and, you know, all these things they held up as idols. The world today is full of people claiming to be wise, but are actually fools. Anyone that turns his back on God is acting foolish. You know, there's scientists that oh, they think they've got it all figured out. And it drives me nuts when scientists try to explain how things happen. And Have you ever watched videos on, on uh, how they try to describe how the earth was created, you know, gazillions of years ago? And they got all these computer graphics and it all looks nice. And I'm like, man, there's no way that they can validate any of this. They're just guessing. Matter of fact, their faith is greater than mine in what they believe. Because there's no evidence, at least I have evidence of what God's doing, but there's, there's nothing that shows that... How they say these things are happening. It's all guessing. The truth is, they're claiming to be wise, but they're actually fools. G.K. Chesterton said the danger when men stop believing in God is not that they will believe in nothing, but they will believe in anything. You know, the purpose and the order of all of creation are enough to tell us that there's, there's a God, there's a supreme being, there's, there's something putting this all together. Matter of fact, I think it's well over 50% of all scientists believe in creationism. They may not believe in our God specifically, but they, they get that this just didn't happen. You know, there's, the world is testifying to them that that's the case. And I was reading about a story of a, a South American company was purchased or purchased a fine printing press from a firm in the United States. And they, they, uh, the South African company buys this incredible machine, it's huge, it's complicated, and when they get it there, all their engineers, they put it all together, but they, they can't get it working. So they, uh, they send back to the states and say, hey we're having a problem getting this working, and you send a technician. So the guy that shows up, he's really young, he's in his mid-twenties, and and all the South African men there, like, they wrote back to the company and say, hey, uh, you know, this guy that you sent seems pretty young and doesn't, doesn't look like he'll have any experience. Can you please take him back and send your most experienced technician? And they looked at him and they said, he built the machine, trust him to fix it. The truth is, We're always looking for something else to fix it. The world is always looking for something else. When we need to trust in God, He's the one who created it. He's the one who created this world. He's the one that created us. He's the only one that can fix it. Amen. In Romans 1, 24 through 27, it says, Therefore God gave them over in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. It says, God gave them over. Do you know that God's a perfect gentleman? He never forces himself on any of us. The choice we have to make is our own. Because it wouldn't be much of a relationship if he forced us to do it. And he lets us go our own way. He lets us do our own thing. And eventually, our, our that's, that's actually what the wrath of God that's revealed that it was talking about, is that he lets us go our own way. He doesn't force us to do anything. And because of that, we pay incredible prices in our body, and our minds, that if we turn from God, there's prices to be paid. There's consequences for our actions. And it's not God doing them to us, it's the stuff doing it to us. It says, therefore, God gave them over in the lust of their hearts to impurity, so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. For they exchanged the truth, exchange the truth of God for a lie, and worship and served the, crea- the creature rather than the creator, who was blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them over to degrading passions. For their women exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural. And in the same way also, the men abandoned the natural function of the woman and burned in their desire towards one another. Men with men committing committing indecent acts and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. Yeah, the wrath of God is not fireballs and floods. But it's the fact that that when you turn away from God, he lets you go. And there's penalties for that in your body. You know, when it talks about these trading uh, the natural functions for one another, this is talking about homosexuality and, and uh, immorality in the, the sexual areas, not having any sexual purity, that there, there's a price to be paid for that. And it's not all physical. While there is physical issues that can come of that, um, in the United States, we had a, a, a big epidemic with HIV among homosexual men. That was one of the penalties that they paid. Is, it, is, is HIV only for homosexuals? No. Is it the punishment of God? No. But it is a, a penalty of that, of that situation. And there's also emotional situations that happen in those areas too. There's an there's a, you know, identity crisis in those men as they don't know who they are. The truth is there's, they receive the due penalty of their error in their bodies. There's always a price to pay for trading the truth for a lie. You know, this seems to be almost describing what's going on in our country right now. As, the, as our country turns its eyes towards God, we begin to see an increase in precisely this sort of stuff as is, is men and women trade their natural, natural function for something that is unnatural. Unnatural. And the truth is, we know homosexuality is a sin. There, there are many that claim that, oh, it's nowhere in the Bible, but it's quite clear to me that, that God is against this stuff. So the question is, what do we do about it? What do we, what, how do we deal with it? Well, I want you to know that even though homosexuality is a sin, we don't hate those who do it. We don't judge those who do it. We don't hold it against them. Because the truth is, God loves them just the same as he loves us. The truth is, as far as God's concerned, there's not one sin that's a greater sin than another. Sin is sin. It's separation from God. And the truth is that God loves them just the same. And we're not, we can't expect people who aren't Christians to act like Christians. We can't talk down about them or treat them poorly. You know, to stand out in front of of one of their establishments with pickets, calling them names and telling them that they're going to hell, not very Christian-like at all. Because God didn't act like that. God came down in the sun and he sat with the, with the sinners and the tax collectors and the, the thieves. And he, he stood with them. Because they need a physician. And the same goes for, for not just homosexuals, but all those that are in sin. All those that are lost in this world. We need to have the same love that Christ has for us, for them. We need to see them through God's eyes. And the truth is that he died for them. Amen. In Romans 1, 28-32, it continues and says, Just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind and to do those things which are not proper, being full, filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents. See what those people were doing? Disobedient to parents. Without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful. And although they knew the ordinance of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but also give hearty approval to those who practice them. You know what, these people, as they began to go down this road, instead of seeing how bad things were getting and and crying out to God, they actually just kept going down the road even further. Instead of hitting the bottom and saying, Lord, help me, they just kept going. It says God gave them over to a depraved mind. They're, they began to, to, to change in their thinking and begin to live horrible things, doing horrible things. And once again, this paints a picture of what's happening today in our society. People in this world need Jesus. The only way we're going to fix this creation, this world, this country, is by giving them Jesus. A new government's not going to fix it. A new president's not going to fix it. The Republicans, Democrats in power is not going to fix it. They need Jesus. The problem is these people knew all this behavior was wrong. And people in this world know the stuff that they're doing is wrong. But they do it anyway. But it gets worse because although they know the ordinance of God, those who practice those things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, not only do they practice it, but they try to get others to do it as well. And then they, give, they pat them on the back for doing so. You know, this is why we need to be made brand new. The only way to get rid of this stuff is to have it replaced. You can't just suppress it. You can't just ignore it. It has to be replaced with a new living spirit inside of you, the spirit of God. You know, we're born broken. We're born like this. But there's hope. As our brokenness can be removed and replaced with a new spirit inside of us, our heart of stone can be replaced with a heart of flesh. In 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11, Paul says to the Corinthian church, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Such were some of you. That you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the Spirit of our God. The Corinthian church at this point is is, they're acting pretty badly. And Paul says to them, Look, you know that these people don't inherit the kingdom of God. He wasn't saying to them, All of you who are doing these things will not inherit inherit the kingdom of God. He says, Such were some of you. Basically, This is who you were, why are you still acting this way? This is who you were, not who you are now. Begin to act like who you are now. You were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul is saying to them, that's not who you are. Act like who you are. Act like the the clean of God. Act like the children of God and live that life. Quit acting like people who don't inherit the kingdom kingdom of God. No, Paul reminded them who they were, and, and to stop acting like who they who they. He reminded them who they were now, and to stop acting like who they were then. In Oregon, there was a a school that started having a, a a kind of a unique problem. What was happening is all the girls were going into the bathroom when they had some spare time, putting on lipstick, and kissing the mirrors, leaving their lipstick prints on all the mirrors. And. As they kept doing this, it was just becoming a nuisance. It was a pain in the butt to clean, and there's lipstick prints everywhere. And the principal says, you know what, there is something that has to be done about this. So he calls all the girls in the school into the restroom. And then he sits with them, and he says, you know, girls, we don't know who's doing this, and we're not really worried about it. We just need it to stop. And I want you to know why, because it's incredibly difficult to clean this lipstick off. And I just wanted to show you girls how tough you're making the life for our custodian who has to clean this off. So, Jim, would you do us a favor and show these girls how hard it is to clean the lipstick prints off? So he pulls out a long-handled brush and he walks over to the toilet, dips it in the water, and walks up and begins to scrub all the lipstick prints off the mirror. And wouldn't you know, the lipstick problem went away after that day. See, the problem is, when we're tempted with sin, if we really understood how filthy it actually was, we'd probably stop flirting with it. If we understood the penalties that come with it, the the pain that it can cause, if we understood how filthy it was, much like the toilet-covered mirror, we'd stop kissing sin. We'd stop flirting with it. Amen? we'll go ahead and finish up here on 2 Corinthians 5.17... This is one that you guys should write down. You should memorize it. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. God loves us just where we are. He loves us too much to so let what we have done get in the way, but He also loves us too much to leave us that way as well. God didn't just ignore what happened, ignore who we were. He didn't ignore sin. But he actually made provision for it. When you are made a Christian, when you accept the Lord Jesus Christ into your life, a miracle happens inside of you. You are no longer who you were. The old man has been dead and buried and, and you have a new life with Jesus Christ. It says that you are a new creature. Other translations say you are a new creation. You are made brand new. And who you were is gone. Who you were is dead and gone. Those things that you might have done when you were who you were, the the two lists that we just read here, those were who you were, not who you are anymore. And I just thank God, behold, new things have come. Amen.